Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome back to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode 14. So I hope everybody had a restful holiday season and new year and is ready to rip into the long-awaited 2021. I've got a great interview coming at you today, so let's get into this opening. Also, the jury's out on whether I'd like to call these openings or rants, so if you have an opinion, please jump over to Instagram, drop me a comment or a message, let me know what you think. So over the holiday, I did a lot of reflection, as most people tend to do when New Year's approaches. And I was out for a walk here in sunny California. It's always sunny, except for when it's on fire here. And I was making a list of words that I wanted my 2021 to embody. And as the words came to me, I would type them into my phone so that I could reference them later. Now, this part is the, uh, this part's a little embarrassing. I wanted to type efficient and I was absolutely blanking on how to spell it, and autocorrect did not have my back on this one. I kept trying spellings, and it would not give me a correction. It just kept suggesting effective. And so finally, I decided that this process in itself was not efficient, and I just accepted effective because it felt similar enough and was kind of captured my idea. And then I paused and I thought, effective is not a substitute for efficient. It could be, at first glance, but it's a way more powerful word than efficient. So I left effective on my list, uh, but to satisfy my OCD, I needed to Google efficient and add that to the list correctly. So for your reference, it's E-F-F-I, not E-F-F-E. You will never find it that way. So anyway, why do I want to tell you about my list and why do I want to talk about this? Well, I think that saying you want to be effective in what you're doing is pretty huge. And I'm really glad autocorrect took me there. We all make goals and say that we want to be better at something or achieve something. But if you're not effective in what you are doing, then you're not going to achieve success. The definition of effective is successful in producing a desired or intended result. That sounds like it fits perfectly. I don't know why that word has never crossed my mind as something to strive for in my career. People seem to think of inanimate objects as being effective. A medication is effective at curing a disease. A 5G cell signal is more effective than 4G, and so on and so forth. People don't really say, the chef was effective at cooking dinner, or that the doctor was effective at fixing their knee, when these people are, in fact, very effective. Last year, I spent a lot of time creating systems, trying to save time, and doing things that would make me more efficient when it comes to completing projects. That was one of my goals last year, to find ways to maintain my quality of work and complete more jobs in less time. I wanted to have more time in my life for other things than my main job as a mixer. And this year, I still want to continue to become more efficient, but with this new angle of being effective while doing it. And I've done this to a certain extent, and I'm sure you have as well, but I personally have never labeled it as being effective. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that you're effective at anything that you complete, but are you really did you complete it to the best of your abilities in a reasonable amount of time? I think sitting down to mix a song or to make a beat with the intention of being effective is super interesting. So let's throw a couple examples out of ways that you could be effective. When doing a project, you can avoid distractions and focus on getting into a state of deep work. That would be an effective way of giving your full attention to the project at hand and probably getting it done faster as well which sounds like you just became more efficient, too. That's an easy example. It might seem a little trickier to be effective while writing music. 
But I'm going to argue this. Set up systems and templates to remove technical barriers from your creation process. And by doing so, you'll become more effective at writing because all your time will be dedicated to creating. That definitely sounds more effective than having to set up microphones or patching keyboards every time you have an idea. You can even approach meetings with the mindset of being effective. If you're pitching on a gig or taking a job interview, think about how you can walk into that meeting and be effective with your sales pitch or whatever it might be. And finally, we can even apply this to goals, and you know how I love breaking down goals. If you want to be effective about achieving your goals, break them down into actionables. And I'm going to leave it there since we discussed that last week. So if you missed that, jump back and check out episode 13. So for some, this opening might seem a little obvious, but I really liked applying the word effective to describing how you can advance your career. And I wanted to share that with y'all. So if it's an angle that excites you and helps you focus in on your tasks or goals, then I encourage you to run with it. Today's guest is Grammy-nominated engineer, musician, and educator Ian Kagi. Ian began his engineering career at MSR Studios in New York City before moving all the way across the Atlantic to work for Berklee College of Music at their Valencia, Spain campus. After a stint as chief engineer and a faculty member there, he returned to New York, where he currently serves as director of operations for Power Station at Berkeley, which is a program to bring new and exciting life to a classic studio with an already historic legacy. So welcome to the show, Ian Kagi. Hey, Ian, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's, uh, it's been, I don't know, like two years, I think, almost since we talked. It's been a minute, yeah. yeah. It's been a minute. <laughs> Crazy. I guess we almost did a gig like a year ago. I couldn't do it. That's right. right. That's right. Yes, that's that's true. Uh, Jesse String actually, yeah, ended up working with us, which was amazing. It was good to see him, certainly. Oh, that's right. You were here. Yeah, I gotta, yeah. I gotta get Jesse yeah. on the show. That'll be good. He's he's awesome. Yeah, we had a we had a great time with that. It was it was uh, I hadn't seen him in really since Berkeley, and and uh, it was so good to see him. And like he, you know, yeah, he's he's a good guy. Pure joy, that guy. Yes, yes. A lot of great comedy out of that guy too. And talent, pure talent as well. Totally, totally. Uh, so. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you moved to New York. You were a runner at MSR, which Manhattan Sound Recorders is—is is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was Manhattan Sound Recording was the the uh, acronym that became MSR. Um, basically, yeah, that studio. When I moved to New York, which was in 2007, it was actually under a different name, so it was Legacy at that point. That studio, while I was there, changed names three times. And the reason for that was because it was a merger of two different uh, facilities, basically. So it was the buildings we were in or the facilities we were in were right track recording. And the uh, ownership was a combination of the owners of right track and the owners of another studio called Sound on Sound. And so in the time I was there for the first part of it, it was it was the two owners. And then eventually over a, a long story and various various changes in, in management and ownership, it went down to just one owner, which was the previous owner of Sound on Sound. And uh, at that point, the name changed from Legacy to MSR Studios. But most people, uh, you know, it was it was MSR for probably the longest time while I was there. So uh, most people know it as that. And unfortunately, that studio uh, closed in 2016. Um, I was there until 2012. And I worked as, as you mentioned, I started as a runner. I um, was there for about nine months as a runner. And then a position on the tech staff opened up. And rather than sort of doing the normal path of going straight to assisting and then kind of working your way up through the assistants, um, I decided to jump over to being a tech um, just because I had some interest in learning that that field. And from there, um, I got to work under an incredible uh, engineer and technician, this guy named Brad Lee, who was the chief engineer of, of MSR Studios. And so I sort of, uh, or I mentored under him for, for a couple of years and uh, got to do a lot of really cool stuff while I was there. And what was amazing is, you know, usually when you become a tech, you sort of get pigeonholed into being a tech. So you don't usually get any time in the room <laughs> as an engineer or as an assistant. It's usually, you know, you get very siloed. But I was there at a, at, a, at a time when, you know, there was shortages in staffing and there were shortages in staffing of assistants that knew, uh, particularly the Euphonic System 5, which was the console that was in our Studio B room there. And so I was really lucky in the sense that I was a tech, but I also got to assist on a lot of sessions. So I got to be in the room more than probably most techs normally do. Part of that was, again, because of the System 5, and part of that was also um, a financial reason, because they realized that if they would put me on sessions, especially over weekends or things like that, then they wouldn't also have to put a tech in the room <laughs> as well. You know, I could sort of <laughs> sort of kill two birds with one stone, because, um, you know, it's... Uh, Studios are hard to keep afloat, and particularly in New York where it's really expensive. So I think uh, at a certain point they, they realized, oh, if, if we put Ian on this session, 
then it means that uh, you know we can have an assistant and a tech sort of all in one on this this particular date. And so that's kind of. Uh, but again, I was I was happy to do it because I got to be in the room and got to assist and got to actually work on recording sessions, which was which was really great. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, studios are really good at finding a way to save uh, save save six hours 100%. of pay. But and anyway, I was going to say when when you moved to New York, you started like at the bottom. Did you ever think that you would end up running a competitor studio to where you started? No, no, ab- absolutely not. Yeah, no, I don't think um, I don't think studio management or running a studio ever really crossed my mind. I think um, when I was at in school and certainly when I started being a runner, I was pretty much just just convinced I wanted to be just a, a recording engineer. Um, and that was the path that I was on and took and, and really did. And th- then my career sort of zigzagged in many, many different directions from there. But no, I don't think I ever would have would have assumed that that was the case. I think um, I ended up being an MSR during such a sort of uh, tumultuous time that, uh, you know, changes in ownership and changes in staffing that at that studio, I ended up doing a lot of different things. Um, and one of the things I ended up doing at, toward the end of my time there was I actually started uh, weekend managing. And so they needed, um, you know, at one point needed a little bit of help basically fielding booking calls and stuff for the weekend because the management staff was relatively short staffed. And so that was kind of my first introduction into actually, you know, directly interfacing with clients in that way and and kind of booking sessions. But no, after that, I didn't really assume that I would ever sort of end up managing a studio or being in a studio, you know, at that point in a studio. So yeah, it was, it was definitely the journey has definitely taken some many twists and turns that were not expected, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking about it. We'll, we'll come back to it. But I forgot about the tech aspect. There's like so much problem solving. I You know, we'll get into your full career path, but I feel like you excel at problem solving and that's how you find yourself in a lot of these situations. And I think some of that's probably from the tech world, right? If this is broken, uh, how are you going to fix 100%, it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I, I, um, you know, I always credit... Um, so I, I mentioned that I... I my sort of mentor was a guy named Brad Lee, who's an incredible engineer and, and technician. And he is gotta be one of the best troubleshooters like in a situation that I've ever seen. So like if you know a session's going down in flames, clients are furious, there's you know, the console power supply is blown up, you know, like the think of the worst possible thing you can imagine. You need a musician sitting on the floor waiting for the, you know, waiting to get back up and running. And you know, Brad just has this amazing ability to walk into those situations and super calmly be able to sort of troubleshoot each step of the process and then get it back up and running very quickly. And that is one of the main things I sort of took from working from him was, was sort of how to, in those situations, sort of put your anxiety and your stress aside and to really like zone in and laser focus on following the sort of steps of troubleshooting and problem solving. But as you mentioned, it 100% applies to everything. It's not just equipment. You know, you can approach so many things in life with that same sort of uh, that same sort of level of doing that. You know, I think when you have the stress level of having to troubleshoot something with like 30 or 40 musicians sitting on the floor waiting <laughs> for you to, to to do your job, like the rest of the stress sort of seems, you know, it's it's a little less than than <laughs> you know, it's a uh, yeah, th- those those are the most sort of terrifying. But yeah, I, I would credit a lot of that from getting I got from uh, from working for Brad for for so many years. Do you have like a like a one sentence hot tip for troubleshooting something that hopefully can apply to more than just the studio? Because I feel like so many people they're unaware of the best way to approach troubleshooting and problem solving. Yeah. Do you do you have a hot tip? Totally. The 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 biggest. I can break it down sort of into, I'll, I'll, it won't be one sentence, but I'll break it down into as small as small a soundbite as I one can. One hour. Uh, one hour, yeah. It's a one hour clip. Um, no, the, the the main things to uh, always do are, uh, I think that the, the, the primary foundation of, of good troubleshooting is always follow signal flow order, meaning always follow the order the signal is going in. Um, the second is never change more than one thing at a time. So, and that, that can apply even beyond, you know, troubleshooting. I think that you're never going to truly figure out what a problem is unless you go step by step and you change out only a single thing at a time. I think that's really the, the, the paramount rule of, of troubleshooting in any situation or problem solving in any situation. And the third thing, which may seem obvious is, uh, don't panic is, you know, in those situations when you're, you're apt to be as, as panicked as possible and as, and as scared as possible, those are the times you really need to like take a deep breath and go slowly and surely through what you're doing. Yeah, those are, those are amazing. Those are so good. And the, this changing a single thing at a time, like just to hammer that home for people, I mean, that applies to like your marketing for your project or whatever it is. Like if, if you're not getting enough listens, you can't change your playlisting company, change your ad 
you know, target. You can't change five things at a time and figure out what's going to help you go forward. So I knew you'd have a good one. So I'm stoked that that's what, that's what we got. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crucial. And I mean, on the tech side of stuff, that's the first mistake everybody makes. So it's like, okay, cool. We're not getting signal. Let's change everything. And it's like, cool. Now we don't know whether the mic cable was bad. We don't know whether the mic was bad. We don't know whether the mic pre was bad. Like, yes, you did get the, you did get the session back up and running, but we have no idea now what actually caused that, that problem. (laughs) I think there's a lot of people that are probably guilty of let's change everything and then you throw it all in a pile on the floor and then you think that you or the assistant or somebody's going to like figure out and then go back and troubleshoot when that session's over. Everybody's Never leaving. happens. And yeah. one of those things 100%. is still broken. <laughs> yeah, that, that cable is 100% going back in the cable exactly. closet and 100% going to be on the next yeah. session. Yeah. Uh, so, that's, so that's amazing. So how did you end up in Spain? <laughs> uh, that's a, whole, uh, and, a pretty and, okay, hilarious if we story. Go, if we go yeah. from MSR to Spain, are we skipping yeah. a lot? Uh, no, we're just skipping one job, really. So okay. I, uh, I got to, you know, I was at MSR for six years, which is, uh, to be at a studio, it's a long time it to, is. to start from a runner and to go through. And so I, by the time I left MSR, I was really, I, I loved it there. And it was hard to leave because, you know, you sort of come up in a studio and you learn in a studio and you sort of grow up in a studio. And so it's hard to leave that place because it's a comforting environment. And even if you are career-wise, it's not the best move for you to stay there. A lot of times people sort of end up staying past their, their sort of expiration date, so to speak, because they, you know, because it's comfortable and, and it's, it's a, it's a spot that feels like home. And that was very much MSR for me, but eventually I did get up the sort of courage to, to, to leave. And, and I had every intention of basically going and starting to freelance and going out on my own, uh, both as a tech and an engineer, because I was starting to get more gigs uh, engineering at that point as well. And oddly enough, a job offer came up that was uh, from a company that essentially was building a a performing arts facility for opera in New York City. And so uh, I got asked to apply for that job. It was forwarded to me and I applied for it. And randomly, right as I was about to go freelance, I got this job to essentially be the first technical director of um, this place called the National Opera Center in New York City. And what they were doing is they were taking two floors of an office building and they were building this uh, recital hall with recording capabilities and video capabilities and a bunch of rehearsal spaces as well, particularly for classical music and opera. And it wasn't an exact perfect fit, but I applied and ended up getting the gig. you know, the appeal of a full-time gig and health insurance and all that really sort of play into, you know, when you, especially when you're just going out on your own, uh, it seemed, you know, at the time I took the gig and again, it wasn't the perfect fit for me, but I learned so much in that job because it was essentially managing a construction site, uh, that was finishing up. It was, uh, commissioning a new studio and new performance spaces. And I have to say that doing that job for the seven months that I did that job, really uniquely prepared me for what came next at Berkeley uh, Power Station when, when, when eventually, you know, we would redo that building. So even though it wasn't the right fit, I still learned a lot of valuable things in that job that that, that came in handy later. So anyway, back to Valencia. I um, So I was working on that job. It wasn't a super perfect fit. I uh, Basically what ended up happening is I got a, a Facebook message from Stephen Weber, who is, uh, had at that point been a professor at Berkeley College of Music. And he had heard through the grapevine, uh, I think from Rob Jasko, who had visited MSR, that I knew the Euphonic System 5 console, that I was a really good person to troubleshoot that, to tech that, and also operate that console. And so he, the only way he knew how to get a hold of me, because we hadn't been in touch in years, was literally through Facebook. And so I got a Facebook message that was, you know, from Stephen Weber that was said, hey, I, am, uh, I just got hired to help uh, start the technology programs in Valencia. I heard that you are the guy on the system five or know it very well. Is there any chance you'd have a conversation uh, about maybe coming over and doing some training for our staff? Like it wasn't a a committed thing at that point. It was like literally, you know, let's have a conversation and see what the possibilities might be. And so, you know, I was uh, sitting in New York in the middle of January uh, and the possibility of going to Spain, even for maybe a couple weeks at a time to, to teach some people the system five seemed like a really cool thing. So, I called Steven, we had a bunch of conversations, um, and ultimately it led to, uh, it seemed to make sense to me for my career and for everything to basically pick up my life in New York City and move to Valencia, Spain. And so I got hired at that point as essentially a studio technician to go and work as a full-time staff member in in Valencia. And so um, 
I think he reached out to me on January 6th or so of 2012. And by April 1st, I was living in Spain. So it was a very quick transition um, from, you know, totally different life in New York City to, to living in a foreign country. <laughs> That's crazy. How far along was that project when you, when you got there? So the Valencia project was very far along when I got there. So what I came in during the first year that they were offering master's programs about halfway during the year, or I guess a little over halfway during the year because it came in the spring. And they had started the performance program, they had started the business program, and they'd started the film scoring program. Mm. And when I got there, the studios had basically just fully opened. I think they fully opened in the spring semester. So they started, you know, they started with some of the studios open in the fall when they started classes. And then I think the scoring stage, the larger studio there and the production rooms came online, I think fully in the early spring. So I, uh, I came in there uh, kind of in the middle of the, of the year. And so the, the studios were built and put together. So when I got there, it was more a matter of figuring out kind of what the best practices for the studio would be. Uh, I worked with um, two other great engineers there that were already there, this guy named Chris Wainwright and this guy named Pablo Schuler, who were already sort of working there as engineers. And so I worked with them to sort of figure out how we could best implement the System 5 in, in this facility for, for you know, students and, and to, to really serve the facility best. And then the focus became very quickly to writing and putting together uh, the master's program for music technology uh, and innovation, which was the program that started the second year that I was there. And so the second year that I was there, uh, Stephen Weber launched uh, that program. And uh, what ended up happening is, is I started to help uh, essentially write curriculum. So I, I had many meetings with Stephen to essentially help write the engineering sort of part of that curriculum or sort of the, uh, the, the I would say, traditional recording engineering part of that curriculum. And it became pretty clear that... Um, Stephen liked what I was doing and what I was writing and putting together. And so he really took a chance and uh, essentially asked if I would teach those classes. So if I would basically move over from staff, still do my staff responsibilities, but essentially rather than them hiring an outside faculty member, they asked if I would essentially teach the recording classes in the master's program. And um, I did. And it was, um, it was terrifying <laughs> because I'd never really classroom taught before. Um, but it, it was... Uh, you know, he really took a risk and a chance and it was really, uh, it was amazing. It was an incredible experience to, you know, definitely trial by fire, but, but a really incredible experience to try to take what you've learned in your career so far as an engineer, take your, your excitement about engineering and then to impart that to students. Um, and so it was pretty, pretty wild. Um, the cool thing about that program though, is it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like music production engineering at, at, in Boston where it's like, it's a, pretty singular focus on music production and engineering, like as far as making records, right? Um, the technology program in Valencia is way more uh, multifaceted. So there are a lot of people that are there that want to study electronic music and, and synthesis. There are a lot of people that want to design apps or products for things. And then there are some students there that want to do more traditional music production route. So it's sort of a, it's a much more broad program as far as the amount of students you get in. So the challenge of that program was really taking a class of like 30 students that all have incredibly different interests and then trying to make them excited about being in a studio and, and recording in a studio. So that was really the, I feel like the primary goal of those classes were to teach, get everybody on the same page with SignalFlow and, and working in a studio so that they could support their projects with that. And then on top of that, also just kind of get everybody excited about recording. So that, that was really what it, what it ended up becoming. That sounds, uh, yeah, I can't even imagine getting tossed in there. And just here, you're going to teach now, by the way. I have, a, I have a really funny story about my first class, which I will impart, which is I talk incredibly quickly. Um, and I always have. And then I moved to New York and it got way worse. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, uh, you know, my first class, these were master's classes. So they were three hour classes. So my first class that I have to teach is a three hour lecture class. And I'm, I'm terrified. And so I pack as much material in as I possibly can. I'm like, this will be fine. This is going to be a three hours easy. Like I'm not going to get done this material in time. It'll be plenty. We'll be able to finish the rest of it up the second week and it'll, it'll be great. I get into the class and I start teaching and I literally like black out and I get through all of the material that I have meant to do. And I looked down at my watch and 45 minutes have gone by <laughs> of a three hour class. <laughs> and I look up and all of the faces in the class are just looking at me stunned. <laughs> like, what just happened? <laughs> because obviously what had happened is I, you know, I had essentially just rifled off as much information as humanly possible as quickly as I could without really looking or gauging the feedback from the students of whether they're actually <laughs> taking any of that. Um, so yeah, it, 
it wasn't, you know, yeah, it definitely was a learning curve to, to, to teach and, and to figure that out. But, but yeah, I got better as, as I went along. Oh, uh, I, you know, I know, I know that feeling like I'm doing, I'm so out of the, out of my zone doing this podcast. I feel like every episode I started a different speed than I end at. Right. <laughs> and it's like that adrenaline, <laughs> totally. like excitement in the beginning. And then at the end, I'm like, so, um, <laughs> exactly. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. But I wanted to ask you, you're obviously outside your, your normal world. You're writing a curriculum, and then you end up teaching. Are there things that you picked up in the studio world that you think helped transition? I mean, how did you relate to these kids you know, by the end of your first semester, did you learn like the best way to, you know, connect and, and teach? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a constant learning process. I think, um, to the, answer the first part of that question, I think that, yes, there was a ton of stuff that honestly, like Berkeley's undergrad college program in recording is pretty great. And they teach you a lot of amazing stuff. And you really come out of that program prepared to, to do many things in the studio. And certainly you, you have signal flow and the various like important things down. But as you know, a professional studio operates totally differently and it's a totally different world. So there's a lot of stuff that you, you learn on the fly and you learn by, by doing it wrong. And you learn by, by having good mentors and good and being in a, in a studio situation where, where you, you really have to like learn how to do that. So I think, um, a lot of it was trying to impart some of that. And a lot of that is, is, you know, etiquette, attention to detail, like things that are just, um, that you just have to learn through kind of being in a, in a professional studio environment. So I always try to push and stress that and those, those lessons. Um, and then on top of that, the really the way to connect with the students I think that I found was, um, again, is you have to be sort of the most excited person in the room. Meaning that if you're teaching something uh, which can be dry to some people, like signal flow or recording, like not, a lot, not every musician or person coming into that finds that super exciting. So what I found teaching or the easiest way to connect is that you really had to express to students and really get across to them the amount at which you loved and were passionate about what you were talking about. So even if it was about a recording console or microphones, I felt like every class you really had to go in and you have to be the most energetic person in the room. You really have to be the most, it's, it's sort of getting students to be passionate and understand why, why having these, these technological tools are only going to help them further what they want to do musically, further what they want to do in technology. And, and so that's really, um, that was really the, the, I think well, the biggest thing I took out of that was just that it's, it's really about imparting a, a passion and love of what you do to the classroom. The other thing too is, and this has took me a while because it's like, we have a, we have a pension to try, especially when we're teaching to try to have all the answers um, and to try to not look like we're caught on, you know, off, off guard, so to speak. And I think the thing that, that is a hard lesson to learn and one that, that, that took me a while was it is 100% okay to say, you don't know, you know, it's 100% okay. If you're in a classroom and you get a question that's tough or a question that you don't know the answer to, it's actually much better to be honest with the students that you don't know. Because the thing is, they're gonna they're gonna figure out that your what you just said is is not correct if you try to fake it, um, and it doesn't really do them any service. So it's much better to say, I don't know, let's look that up, or I don't know, let's let's I'm gonna figure that out for next week, and we'll we'll take a look at that. So I think that was a big thing where it's a lot of times your your pride or ego can get in the way of wanting to of not wanting to look like you don't know which you know don't know a specific topic or something. So I think the the that's a really big thing too is just being okay with not knowing and with learning along with the students as well. No, I totally agree with that. It's funny. I feel like there's a uh, I mean, I've done it. I know most of the people I know have done it in the engineering mixing world where somebody offers you a gig and and you don't know how to use the thing or like you do this, right? And you're like, "Of course I do." And then you stay up totally. all night and you learn it. But Eventually you get caught in one of those. I don't know if I've been caught, but I don't do it anymore. I just, but you, it's right along with what you're talking about. I mean, sure, you can fake it, but these kids are going to catch you. Totally. And I think, um, I think as you said, it's, it's like you totally can apply that to being a producer engineer, like that same lesson where it's like, if you're not the right person for the gig, even artistically, then a lot of times it's better to recommend somebody that might be, that might be the better person. Because it's like, yes, you can totally 
do it and probably fake your way through it. But are you really doing a service to that person or that or that project, or are they going to be better served going to the you know the you know going straight to the to the people that will be? One hundred percent. It's like, and I feel like you have to be whatever your career is. You have to be in it for a minute to come to that conclusion because everybody starts out with the attitude that they have to do everything. I have to do every gig. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you're an artist and you you don't want to play a festival that does isn't a fit for you, you're not going to get any fans from this dance festival because you're a rock band. I mean, why would you play that festival? It's just cost you money, you know? Right, right. I have a question. Um, I I spoke with uh, with another educator. I don't know what order these episodes will be in. So I, hopefully somebody doesn't steal somebody's thunder. But um, <laughs> I have an opinion. I'm curious if you have opinion on when you're teaching something. Have you found that the best way to teach something may or may not be the real world application, or do you strive for the real world application having priority? Hmm. Um, I think it depends on what it is, but but I would say I probably fall in the category of real world application of showing them, you know, of showing the students how that's going to be, how that's actually going to be used in practice. So I would say that with engineering and mixing and which is predominantly what I was teaching in music production stuff, I feel like most of the time it was trying to to get the students to use that toward an actual project or get to them to use that toward an actual goal, like artistic goal. Right. Because it just makes, it, it just, again, like I feel like that the way you learn in the real world is it's not like a class, right? You, you learn because you're like, you're hired to do a gig. You don't necessarily know how to do that particular thing. So you, like you're saying, you sort of teach yourself or, or you force yourself to learn how to do it. And so I think... Um, the educational side, I feel like it, it, it sort of falls along those same lines where you're like this, I'm going to teach you how to do this, but you're going to do this for your your own particular project so that you learn how to do it and learn how to put that in practice. Um, you know, one of the things I did in the music production class is we created this, um, and this was, uh, again, a sort of collaboration between Steven uh, Weber and I of, of sort of coming up with this uh, this idea, but we basically created this project called the like the soundscape where they basically had to create a piece of music and we kept adapting that same piece of music the entire semester so basically the students would work on the sort of the same piece of music and every assignment would build on that particular thing so one of the weeks was you know dealing with recording your own samples and dealing with so it was, it was basically a way to have a real world or not a real world but have a an artistic project that they could keep adding and chipping away at by learning these sort of different lessons um, and again at the end of the semester maybe it was some a piece of music they wanted to release, maybe it wasn't, but it ended up being something where it was nice that they were working on something that they wrote and that they were they were sort of pushing forward, but also learning all these sort of like real world things that they would need to know on the way. Like, you know, one of the weeks was, um, again, like doing drum sampling, one of the weeks was uh, working with a string arranger in another department. So like having to work with, you know, collaborate on something. One of the weeks was vocal production. So they had to like add a vocal to it and learn how to vocal tune. And so it's, yeah, I think I definitely fall more on the side of, of trying to push them to do real world things to learn learn those applications. That's great. That's, I mean, I kind of, I totally agree with that. But what you're doing there is you're transferring that excitement that you talked about, like while you're teaching, you have to be the most excited person in the totally. room and find a way for these people to be stoked about something. And you're like, hey, we're making this music. That's actually a really cool project. It really, it was great. And the thing with it was, is the reason why it worked uh, fairly well over there was, um, again, we had such a diverse student base as far as what their interests were. So, you know, we have everybody from electronic musicians all the way to, you know, people that had just come out of MP&E and were recording engineers. And so trying to find a project that applied to all of those different interests was, that was the, that was great. And what ended up happening is that almost every one of those projects sounded nothing alike. You know, it was like everybody had their own take, their own. So it was really fascinating to have, you know, at the end of the semester to listen through where these sort of became and what these sort of things created. Um, it was really interesting. You know, one of the things we did on that project too that was really, uh, I think, hard for the students but really interesting is so basically the, the assignment the first week was you can create a piece of music and there's no restrictions on it. I don't care what DAW you do it in. I don't care how you create it. I just want you to make this piece. And the only requirement was they had to base it on one particular emotion. So like the whole thing was like, you have to make a piece that's about, you know, anger or happiness or w whatever you want, but you have to tell me what, what the, what the emotion was you were trying to go for. And then you have to submit this musical piece. And so as you can imagine with students, the length ranged all over the place. So some people, you know, put in like, like a 12 minute trance piece. One student might've brought in like a three minute pop song and all these different things. And then the following week, the assignment was, okay, this is great. You guys created all these pieces. Now what I want you to do is you need to make a one-minute version. 
And so basically the second assignment was take whatever you've just done and do the same thing in a single minute. And that was like, I mean, that just like was such a cool assignment for them because it really, um, again, it's just getting, uh, it's just teaching efficiency of, of what you're putting across and trying to like, okay, you have a 12 minute arc to tell this emotional story, do the same thing in, in a one 12th of that time. And, you know, it, again, that was just, a just trying to force students to sort of take these real world applications or, or sort of real world applications of scenarios. And, and also just to kind of prioritize what the artistic content they're putting out there is, um, was, was kind of the goal of that project. Super cool, man. Props to you guys for coming up with that, that flow. Cause I think, uh, that's so far out of what I remember us doing when we were at Berkeley and I'm not knocking Berkeley at, at all, uh, totally, but yeah, it feels yeah. like, I mean, I guess it has been, I mean, it's been a long time, I guess it's methods change. Uh, but I, anyway, I think that's great. So you guys, you yeah, guys are and I think as, yeah, well, I think a lot of the credit that goes to, to Steven Weber, because I think that, you know, he taught for almost 20 years before he went over and, and sort of started the Valencia program over there. And so I think, um, one of the amazing things about starting a new educational program for him, and one of the things that he like loved about it was that it wasn't a, a program that had existed for decades. So that you were able to, um, you're really able to quickly modulate ideas and also try stuff that was totally new and totally different. So I think um, it was fun working for for Steven on that project, and also fun working for something like that because we weren't really, our hands were not tied by years of of precedent in an in a educational institution, so to speak. That's great. So did you leave Valencia to go to Power Station or did you leave Valencia to go independent? Uh, I left Valencia to go independent. Yeah, so I actually- You just keep trying to go um, independent and somebody just keeps sucking you in. It's just like <laughs> they keep pulling me back in. Yeah, exactly. It's like the mobster movie thing, right? Yeah. It's like I try to get out and they- So how, how was that in. transition for you? Um, it's terrifying again. I think it was another <laughs> thing where it was like, yeah, so I was, uh, so I got- two years into teaching in Valencia and it was an amazing experience, but I was, I was done. Like I was, um, not that I didn't like teaching, but I really missed working professionally. Like I really missed being in New York in a center of arts and culture. I mean, not that Valencia doesn't have great arts and culture, but it's not an international hub of music like New York is. And so I really just missed working professionally. And I think that a realization came to me while I was teaching during the second year. And it was that, I was teaching students to be passionate about something that I still really wanted to be doing. And mm-hmm. so it felt, um, it felt like I wasn't quite ready to just teach. I felt like I needed to, to kind of go back into my career a little bit. And so I had a very candid conversation with the administration there with Steven and, and about what to do. And they, uh, Steven specifically asked if I would stay one more year just to basically make the transition easier in the sense that they could find a new person to replace me. They could go through the, the process. Um, so I did, I stayed one more year, which was great. You know, it was kind of nice teaching one last year, sort of knowing that was your last because you could really kind of focus on what was important and you know, you weren't worried about, yeah, it just was a really freeing year to be able to teach in that, in that way. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, the plan was just to come back to New York and, and work for freelance. So that's exactly what I did. So I left, um, I left on August 1st, I think it was 2016. And so came back to the States and it was crazy. It was, it was interesting coming back to New York, but, um, I, yeah, so I immediately started freelancing and I, I split my time in 2016 doing, uh, a lot of projects where I was either editing or engineering or, or working on a lot of, a lot of theatrical projects, a lot of cast albums and, and various things. Can, can I, uh, which can is, I interrupt you, know, you? Totally. Yeah. Um, so you came back to New York before we go down everything you did, you basically, you were mostly gone for three years. Did you, mm-hmm. what did you do to get back into the scene? Were you staying in touch with people? Did you just start calling people? You're like, I'm back. I want to work. Let's do this. Totally. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I think that was helpful is I did stay in touch with most people while I was gone. And I think the other thing too is in today's world, obviously we can do a lot of stuff remotely. So there were some clients that I actually kept doing stuff for even while I was abroad. So like there were like a couple clients I had where I did vocal tuning and editing and I would still do that. Like, because obviously in Valencia, you could still, I mean, I could still remotely vocal tune for them. And so there were certain projects where I was still working with people. So that made the transition a little bit easier. Otherwise it was really just like, uh, trying to just, yeah, just let people know. So either going out socially with people and just letting them know that what my plans were coming back. Um, but yeah, once you get back and, and back into it, it was, um, it was easier than I expected it to be. It was easier than I expected to sort of jump back into the the world here. You know, one thing that was 
un, that was very surprising to me was when I was here in 2012, before I went to Valencia, I was kind of like a, a little stuck, like a little spinning my wheels in the freelance side, meaning like I, a lot of people still saw me as an assistant engineer, saw me as a, someone that was like an editor, but not really as someone that could maybe be the primary engineer on a project. Like you sort of get stuck in those ruts. And then I left and went to Valencia for three years. And what's amazing is sometimes pulling yourself out of your environment, going to do something totally different, and then bringing yourself back into that environment, having people know that you went off and sort of did this next level step or this next thing, for me, it made it easier to actually jump to the next level. It made it easier to come back and be like, I'm at the engineering level of doing this project. Or I'm, you know, it, I don't think I would have had the, as smooth a transition to that had I not actually left. So for me, leaving and coming back was actually probably the best thing I could have done. I, I agree. There's a key like moment where they were like, I need to actively make a change. And that inadvertently turns into what shoots them over the next hurdle. Because everybody hits those plateaus. You know, if you're an engineer and you want to mix or you're, songwriter but you want to produce like whatever it is like once people see you in this community because the music community is not that big it feels really big but it's not we all know lots of people that all know each other you can definitely become the guy or girl that does this and they do that and they don't do this but you might want to do that thing totally yeah yeah no it definitely you know it definitely was it was surprising to 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 sort of figure that out but again yeah it just makes it sometimes it's just easier you just got to change it up totally and then when you come back in people are way more willing to look at you in a different light or to look at you in sort of the next step of your, your career. I think most people don't realize that change happens until afterwards, I think. Yeah, you, totally. you, have, you have to have that happen to you one time and then you can look back and be like, oh man, that's the thing. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> that's why I got that. Anyway, um, so I want to hammer on, on Power Station unless there's anything yeah, you want to touch totally. on before. My understanding just from like reading and like our conversation a couple years ago, Power Station at Berkeley you guys are trying to make this like a musical culture center an operational recording studio and still like an education hub for Berkeley. Is that kind of like what's going down? That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the, the way to classify it. So it, it is a 100% a hybrid facility in the sense that it is, uh, we, our goal is to service commercial clients and to be a commercial recording studio, but then also to have a full-time educational component as part of that, part of that same building and same uh, organizational structure. So that's, that's absolutely right. How do you build that out and who comes up with that idea? Because it's obviously very forward thinking to, to mix all of these things together and you put it in a place like New York City where something like that deserves to be. Like, where, how, does this, how does this come to be? Yeah, so, um, you know, how it com- came to be, honestly, was, was a bit of an, not an accident, but just, just a really unexpected path for even Berkeley. And so what happened is, is that uh, there is a board of trustee member, a gentleman named uh, Pete, Pete Muller, who uh, has done very well for himself in the financial world, but is, also loves music and is a musician and a songwriter. And, um, you know, he was really passionate about doing something for Berkeley and wanting to do something for Berkeley in New York. And right about the time he was going to do that, a producer and musician in New York that he worked with for a long time, this gentleman named Rick DePoffey, knew that Avatar was for sale. And so he basically recommended to Pete or sort of put the idea in Pete's head of, of, hey, if you're looking to do something with Berkeley in New York, this studio is going to close and going to be sold for condos unless somebody steps in and does something. And so Pete really took that and ran with it and went back to Berkeley and basically said, I'm willing to do this for you, meaning I'm willing to essentially purchase this building and put this forward, but I want Berkeley to run it and I want Berkeley to create this, essentially this be Berkeley's project to, to take on. So Berkeley took up that challenge and they essentially, um, that's where it all began. And I think that uh, oddly enough, or, or sort of uh, coincidentally, the the man who hired me to go to Valencia, Stephen Weber, was the same person that Berkeley tasked for sort of taking over this project. And so what ended up happening is uh, I was left Berkeley Valencia and was freelancing, but then uh, about a year into that, uh, Stephen so essentially contacted me again and pulled me into this project to help him essentially figure out not only what this was going to be, but essentially to take over the the studio and to to uh, basically make this new this new entity. And so. The plan from the beginning of this is, is, was always to keep it a commercial studio. So everybody realizes with the project, including everybody at Berkeley, how important these studios are to New York's music industry. 
Um, you know, it's one of the few multi-room places left in New York City. There's only really a handful of those spaces left. And this space uh, supports so many musicians and so many, and its own ecosystem of, of the music industry. And so I think everyone with the project really quickly realized that this isn't a situation where we can just turn this thing into a school and where that's going to be okay. Everybody really realized that we need to keep this an active place for professional music in New York City. And so with that, Berkeley's mission is also to educate. So there had to be some sort of educational component that went along with this. And so what they figured out or what they, what they after many months and various things of figuring this out was that the best way to treat this was like almost like another Valencia, which was to create programs in the New York campus that don't exist in the Boston campus so that there's another offering and another place for students to go. And so what they decided to do was to offer a master's program. So very similar to Valencia, where our first offering as an educational facility will be uh, three master's degrees or three different concentrations of a master's degree. And so what those degrees are going to be is um, one is in production songwriting. So sort of a modern take on songwriting. So dealing with writing it in a collaborative sense, like having someone that does a top line, that does the beat, that does, you know, like very much a modern songwriting program is one of those fields. Uh, the second concentration, because we're in New York, because uh, Berkeley has merged with Boston Conservatory, and because there's a, this incredible push and renewed interest in musical theater, the next program, next part of this is essentially uh, writing and design for musical theater. And so for the first time, Berkeley's going to offer essentially a, a concentrated program, a graduate program uh, for writing musicals and being a musical theater writer. And there's no better place than New York really for that to take place and for that to happen because it is the center of the industry. And then the third one, uh, which is affectionately called uh, LED, which stands for live experience design, is a modern look at technical theater. And so what I mean by that is looking at the electronic arts of, of production, meaning uh, video walls and projection mapping, modern sound design and lighting design. So it's sort of, a, a, again, a very broad and well-rounded sort of technology in performing and live events and theatrical events. Um, so you'll notice that all three of those, none of those are traditional recording programs. And that was done incredibly intentionally. The reason being is, is if our mission is to serve the professional recording community in New York City and simultaneously be a full-time educational facility. If you only have five recording studios, you don't have the room to do all of that under one roof. So while you can have the studios very much support the educational program, you can't do like a graduate MP&E where you really can have the, the students at all times in the studios, right? If we did that, I don't think there'd be any way to really support both of the missions. So I think very wisely, uh, the programs were laid out so that they can sort of coexist with each other and, and be in the same place. Now, that being said, there is also plans for Power Station to be a conduit for the music production engineering program in Boston to help students get into the industry in New York. And what I mean by that is that one of the things that we're still working with and developing is a last semester in New York City program for music production engineering. So that if students were, let's say, almost done their degree in Boston, they could come down, uh, take their last few classes in New York City. Maybe there's a, you know, a dedicated internship program at the studio to where their sort of introduction into the world of the professional studio world in New York City would be directly through Power Station and sort of directly part of their curriculum, so to speak, into, into the world. So uh, those are kind of the educational programs that are kind of being talked about and or not being talked about. These are the ones that are sort of moving forward and, and, and going to be developed in, in New York City. That's awesome. That that's yeah. like some definitely uh, it, it's impressive to tie together the impact of that studio leaving, you know, the public use, because I think most people would not recognize that. So I think it's important that that Berkeley together realize like this is something that needs to stay here. Yeah, so that, that's and great. To, to that point. So when we took over in 2017, it was very apparent that the building needed to go through major renovations um, and major construction. But we decided, even though we were not going to start the educational programs anytime soon, because we needed to get accredited, we needed to renovate the building, we needed to do this whole long-term project to get the, that ready. We, it was very obvious the need for that studio to exist in New York. So we opened up, the first thing we did was we opened up commercially. So even, you know, before anything else happened, the first priority of Berkeley taking over that studio was to get back open commercially. Because honestly, it's just such an important place in New York, um, as I mentioned, for, for recording and for the industry here. And 
it was also important for us as a university, you can imagine the skepticism. So you, you, can, you can imagine that the professional world in New York City, seeing a college take over a recording studio, their first thought is, oh, students are gonna be running my sessions. This is no longer a professional studio. This, you know, there's, there's a, there was a huge like sort of black cloud of misinformation hanging over us when we reopened. And so it was incredibly important for me and, and for us to, to open the facility and just kick ass meaning to open up the facility, book in really high-end sessions, and just provide as essentially as best a level of customer service and of studio service that we possibly could. Because it was crucial to, again, sort of convince the New York world that we were going to be good caretakers of the studio and that the place they had gone for decades to make good records and to have really high-end service was still going to be preserved in, in that regard. That was, that was a really crucial goal of, of us taking over the facility. That's great. And we all know that it, it can be challenging to convince a New Yorker of something once they believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. So uh, you guys have obviously you know, gutted the building to whatever extent you, you planned on doing it. You've done a lot of rebuild. Are there any like, uh, big moments in there where you were like, I can't believe we did this. This was a great idea or things you drew on in your past experiences of, you know, building other studios just in the actual Um, physical, like reconstruction process. Totally. The reconstruction process was unbelievably unique and also just, uh, really, really, uh, really wild to see. Um, the building, uh, the built, well, the building has gone through many lives, which is really fascinating. It went through, um, you know, it started as an actual power station. Um, so it was a big industrial building, uh, built in the 1920s. And then its first life in the arts was actually as a TV studio. So where studio a is, was actually a giant soundstage that they sort of carved out of this building. And so the reason why the, the sort of beautiful wood dome and A is, can be, you know, two stories high is because they had already sort of taken the slab out of the building and created this sort of open space. Um, and then when power station ran it, it went through several renovations, you know, they sort of expanded out and built one studio at a time and kind of piecemeal kind of put this building together. But, uh, there hadn't been a really major renovation of the facility in, in decades. And so it was, um, really crucial to us to improve the building, uh, from, certainly from a physical plant standpoint, meaning the air conditioning system needed to be redone badly. The electrical system needed to be redone badly. The building just needed a facelift in order to be able to, to sustain itself for hopefully another couple decades. And so the um, challenge became, we wanted to preserve these, you know, there are these four, uh, there's five studios in the building, but there's four uh, iconic rooms that are there that have been on you know, so many records and are just such a big part of the history of the building and of New York and everything. Um, so the challenge became gutting the rest of the building while preserving these four uh, recording studios. And so that's really what it became. It was really wild. It was sort of these four islands that got preserved within this space. And then everything around it was dismantled and everything around it was then rebuilt. And so what we've done in the building, which is amazing, is we have reclaimed as much program space as humanly possible. So we have added... Um, where there was storage before or where there wasn't even floors in the building before, we have added essentially as much space as we can to support the mission of the building. So one of the most exciting things is the basement, which previously was a, was a huge like storage warehouse essentially, has been turned into a beautiful black box theater. So there's a performance space now in the building that is directly, uh, you know, has tie lines, both video and audio to all the studios upstairs. So, you know, doing large scale multimedia events and doing live streams and doing uh, performances in the building will be easier than it ever has been. Um, the other thing is we built uh, four different spaces that are sort of larger classroom or, or ensemble room spaces that can be flexible educational spaces in the building. We you know, essentially updated the lounges and created a private lounge space for some of the studios that didn't have it before. Uh, we added a bunch more bathrooms to the facility, which seems like a boring thing to talk about. But honestly, if you'd ever done a session of the building, you know, Studio A, which fits can fit up to 40 musicians, um, you know, a lot of times there's only, we're only two bathrooms on that floor. So if you did a break during like an orchestra session, you know, your 15 minute break would quickly turn into a 20 minute, half an hour break. So a lot of people were actually, you know, myself included are pretty excited about the, the, the addition of bathrooms to the facility or more bathrooms to the facility. Um, but really we took it from being a, a what I would say the biggest change is we've took it from being a, a very exclusive, amazing, legendary studio and we've turned it into this very outward facing, uh, inclusive center for all performing arts is, is really what the, the biggest transition has been. So the 
most amazing things of the place have been preserved, so these amazing studios, but we've added so much more and added so much more value to the, to the building and, and the space itself. That's great. I mean, super impressive. I, I would have loved to have seen, if you have any pictures, you have to send me of like a mostly gutted Tons. building. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, the, that part of the process was the scariest. I mean, it, I would say it was the most interesting, but it was, it was definitely the scariest. One of the craziest things is, so Studio A is all wood. It's this beautiful wood constructed space. Right. They built it uh, entirely freestanding in, in the, the soundstage. So it's almost built like a TV set where it is literally like a, the control room. Everything is, is supported from the ground, from the concrete. Like almost nothing is supported from above, which for us was actually incredibly fortunate because it made it easier to preserve the space. But honestly, there's I have this great picture of when they were tearing out like sort of some of the second floor above it, where you literally just sort of see almost like this house sitting in the middle of a, of a concrete shell, which is Studio A, just like sitting in this blank space. It, it, it was really wild to see it all torn apart. Oh, wow, that's cool. Because I know, I know what that space looks like, so I'm I'm visualizing seeing it from above. That's crazy. It's quite, quite bizarre. So... I mean, you sound like you love this ride. You've been on a on like a crazy ride. You've done a bunch of things you probably thought you would never do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yes, it has been a crazy. Yeah, it's it's been a really crazy um, career and and journey so far. You know, the thing that's amazing is is uh, it, it's certainly not been boring. It, you know, there's been uh, different challenges and and easy times and hard times, and you know, all of it has been a, a whirlwind and, and things that have come up that I've never expected to do. Like I never expected to go abroad and, and live outside the country. I never expected to, certainly never expected to have something like being able to be involved in something like renovating, you know, power station. But all of it has been, uh, has been really amazing. And I think the, the coolest thing about all of it for me is that every day I've gotten to wake up and be working on something that is related to music and music recording. And it's been in different parts of that world. But honestly, that's pretty awesome. Just having being able to get up and uh, literally every day be working in the field that I love and am passionate about, and, and that's really um, something that I hope I never take for granted. Certainly, uh, as the journey continues, that's um, that's awesome that you feel that way. So many people have such a hard time in music that they can become so frustrated and let that mindset take them over. But yeah, to look around and see all the stuff that you're doing and taking in and still being excited is is amazing. So as we close, I like to put people on the spot. I don't know if I mentioned this to you and ask, ask you a no. question. So um, since this sometimes is a goal-oriented podcast, I like to ask people, what, what's your, your current big goal and what's the first thing you're going to do to go towards it? Mm. So our, the current big goal, next big goal, is actually helping to reinvent the business model for the professional recording studio. So, and what I mean by that is uh, what we really want to do with reopening Power Station is to create a model where we can actually have a sustainable business model with a professional recording studio in a large market like New York City. And so there's a lot of things we're working toward to try to make that easier and also try to make that where we can support artists as best as we possibly can and to where we can make it to where we can pay our staff a living wage. And so I think that's the, honestly, the primary goal is, is that is figuring out what that business model looks like. At least the biggest goal in my life is sort of figuring out what that looks like um, going forward as we reopen the studio. So that's kind of the immediate, immediate challenge in my, in my, I would say, or goal in my life. Do you know, that. do you know what you're going to do, do first? What's your, um, what's your gut say? What's our gut oh, in, in doing that? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, honestly, what, the, uh, how are you going to get there? I guess. Totally. Um, so we're, what we're looking at doing is trying stuff that, uh, is a totally different way of looking at, at recording studios. So one of the things we've played with and have talked about is creating essentially a membership model for people that use the studio. So, and what I mean by that is creating a, more of a collective or community for people that need access to the studio. And what that looks like in practice is it looks like, okay, if you're an artist and you need subsidized rates to the recording studio, that's totally understandable. But what if that looked more like a partnership where you actually paid us a membership fee throughout the year and then you essentially get our support to essentially subsidize your projects and, and put you through that? So I think that's one of the things we're playing with and looking at is trying to create a more sustainable model for the revenue stream of a recording studio. So you don't go through these really dry months of having no business and, and no revenue coming in versus these months of, you know, the sort of feast or famine mentality. That's a really hard way to keep a, a business going and a really hard way to support uh, 
the sustainability of the business. So I think one of the things we're directly looking at is to, again, um, possibly expanding to sort of a, a more membership model or, or, or a, a way to have more sustainable revenue coming in. And um, again, also just helping to, to create a community that really feels ownership of the space uh, and feels part of this experience rather than, again, it's making, trying to make the process a way more inclusive process than exclusive process, I think is what we're looking at doing. That's awesome. That's really great. This has been a, a really good conversation. I've, I've, uh, Thanks, man. It, I, I, I love all these things. I could keep going. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's awesome to talk to you and, and, and uh, catch up for sure. And, and uh, I appreciate you asking me, to, asking me to do this. Yeah, it was great. So uh, um, is there anything you want to tell our viewers on like where they can find you or stuff they want to look at about Power Station or whatever, any links on the web? Totally. Um, so basically, the, the primary place to find information about the studio is actually powerstation.nyc. And so a couple of years ago, New York City started .nyc domains, which is pretty cool. So we got up, ours is powerstation.nyc. Uh, um, and then the educational part, uh, we just launched this website, so I always say it wrong. So let me just make sure that I have the right, the right one. We literally, literally just launched this. Ah, there we go. So if you're looking for the educational side of Berkeley NYC, it is berkeley.edu uh, backslash NYC. It's where to find more information about that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, man. This has been great. Thank you, Travis. So that is it for the first episode of 2021. I'm looking forward to going through this whole year with y'all. Uh, don't forget to share, like, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. We really depend on that. And also, if you're interested, jump over to completeproducer.net and get in on the conversation there. We'll see you next week.